This morning we're going to consider glory to God even in betrayal. Glory to God even in betrayal. And our passage is John chapter 13 verses 31 through to 38. Last week we left off with Judas Iscariot departing from the upper room to betray the Lord Jesus Christ to the chief priests. Continuing from that, we now read in verses 31 and 32 of John chapter 13. Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself, and shall straightway glorify him. There's a word that seems to be mentioned quite a lot just in those couple of verses. What are those two? What's that word that's mentioned so often in verses 31 and 32? Glorify. One, two, how many times there? One, two, three, four, five times. It's probably a good idea if we have some understanding of what it means to glorify God. If we're going to look at these verses, we need to have at least some idea what it means to glorify God. To glorify God is to praise, to extol, (coughs) extol, magnify or celebrate him. When God is glorified, his majesty and his splendor are revealed in what is said, and what is done by others. One obvious way of glorifying or magnifying God is for Christians to make God known through witnessing the gospel of his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Witnessing to others and thereby glorifying God. As far as possible, you are to glorify God and avoid offending people. That's quite difficult to glorify God and at the same time not to offend others in what you say and what you do. Inevitably, there will be times when people will be deeply offended when you glorify God by proclaiming to them his law and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some may well take you off their Christmas card list when they hear from your mouth that they are sinners and that they stand condemned before a holy and a righteous and wrathful God. However, blessed are you if and when you are on the receiving end of insults and persecutions, not because of your stupidity, but for Christ's sake. And God is glorified, even though You offend people with the truth. God is glorified. Even the routine and the mundane things in life can and ought to be done for the glory of God. As the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. With regards eating to the glory of God, 
Paul said those words within the context of not causing offence to others unnecessarily. As I've already said, you will inevitably cause offence to people if you tell them, when you tell them, that they are sinners in need of the Saviour. But we don't go out of our way to offend people. Uh, We don't go out of our way to offend people by what we eat. Even if it's perfectly permissible for you to eat something. And it's your favourite dinner. If it's going to offend somebody, then don't eat it. Another thing now, all you lovers of music, those of you who tune into the radio stations or sit back and listen to your favourite music, let me tell you what the German composer and musician Johann Sebastian Bach said. Quite interesting to hear what Bach said about music. All music should have no other end and aim than the glory of God and the soul's refreshment. Where this is not remembered, there is no real music but only a devilish hubbub. He headed his compositions, Jesus help me, and he ended them with the words, To God alone be the glory. Now looking at our passage, John chapter 13, verse 31, it is written, Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. In verse 31, Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man, which is a messianic term that speaks of him being sent into the world by his father and it speaks of Jesus as being of the seed of King David who was in the world about a thousand years before Jesus. As the son of man the Lord Jesus Christ never ceased to be God. When you see that term the son of man Don't imagine for one moment that Jesus gave up his divinity when he came into the world. For example, in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13, Jesus speaking to his disciples asked them, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? He referred to himself as the Son of Man. Who do people say I am? And the disciples said to Jesus, some say that you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist, and so on and so on. And then Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? Bear in mind that Jesus had just referred to himself as the Son of Man, and he asked asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, thou art the Christ, the Son of Of the living God. Son of man. Son of God. You cannot separate the two. And in John chapter 10 and verse 30. Jesus himself said. I and my father are one. Thereby declaring his divinity. When you keep all that in mind. Hopefully you'll appreciate. That when the the man who is God glorified God who sent him, he was also glorifying himself. 
Why? Because he is God. When Jesus glorifies God, he glorifies his Father, he glorifies himself. You can't separate the, the, the Trinity there. <clears throat> the Apostle John, speaking about Jesus, said in John chapter 1 and verse 14, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The apostles beheld the glory of Jesus when they were with him for three and a half years. And so we read in verse 31, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and and God is glorified in him. Jesus is glorified, God the Father is glorified. There's an example of Jesus glorifying himself in the first recorded miracle that he performed when he turned water into wine at a marriage in Cana of Galilee. We're told in John chapter 2 and verse 11, this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory However, here in verse 31, something different is going on. Sure, Jesus is glorified. God is glorified. But have a look at that very first word in verse 31. Therefore. The verse starts with therefore. And that tells us that Jesus was glorified not by some miracle that he had performed, but by Judas Iscariot going out to betray him. That's what immediately preceded the therefore. Judas leaving to betray him. Therefore was the Son of Man glorified. Can you make sense of that? How can the act of betrayal ever be said to have glorified the Lord Jesus Christ? In accordance with God's purpose, that act of betrayal ushered in the climactic phase of the Lord's earthly ministry, his sacrificial death of the cross. Jesus would very soon be crucified, but forget any thoughts that you might have of Jesus being dragged kicking and screaming to the place of execution and protesting his innocence. It didn't happen that way. That's not what we read in the scriptures. Jesus always did his father's will. It was his food to do the will of his father who sent him. And that perfect obedience was in place even unto the death of the cross where Jesus would redeem with his own precious blood all who trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins. Also through his death on the cross, Jesus would destroy the one who had the power over death, that is the devil. Think about it. We know from verse 27 that Satan had already entered into Judas Iscariot to betray the Lord. I can't help thinking that Satan would have been wildly excited. We're not told, but I I can only imagine that maybe Satan was even there or one of his demons or many of his demons were there 
when Satan entered into him. That's what we read in verse 27. I can't imagine that Satan was anything less than euphoric when Judas Iscariot left that upper room. But that euphoria would very soon come to an end when Satan's head would be crushed at the cross. Little wonder that far from pleading with Judas Iscariot not to betray him, what did Jesus say to Judas Iscariot in verse 27? Look at it. That thou doest, do quickly. (laughs) Jesus didn't get in the way of Judas Iscariot. He didn't block the doorway. He didn't stop him from leaving. He said, that thou doest, do quickly. Get on with it. Betray me. What is clear is that even in that upper room, the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated his resolve and his determination to be crucified and to be slain at the cross, to bear away in his own body the sins of all who would ever repent and trust in him as their Lord and their Saviour. And he would do so in obedience to his Father and out of love for those he came to save. Surely such a resolve is worthy of honour and praise. Most certainly the Lord Jesus Christ and his sender were glorified in that upper room when Judas Iscariot left to betray him. Let's have a look at verse 33 now. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, ye shall seek me. And, as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you. Some months earlier at the Feast of Tabernacles, we're going back to chapter 7 now, uh, Jesus said in verses 33 and 34, Yet a little while I am with you, and then I go unto him that sent me. Ye shall seek me, and shall not find me. And where I am, thither ye cannot come. On that occasion, Jesus was not speaking to his apostles, his disciples. He was addressing the unbelieving Jews. And what he was actually saying to them was that there's no place in heaven for anyone who is not trusting in him for the forgiveness of their sins. Jesus had on previous occasions, such such as in Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, told his disciples that he must suffer, that he must be killed and rise again after three days. But now, in verse 33, with Judas gone, Jesus was tenderly speaking to the eleven who remained and calling them little children. Those little children whom he had from time to time told them that he would suffer and die, and rise again. And he told them that he would soon be returning to heavenly glory. In verse 33, Whither I go, ye cannot come, so now I say to you. However, 
Unlike those believing Jews in chapter 7 at the Feast of the Tabernacles, his little children would eventually, and they would most certainly be with him in heaven when the time in the world was done. An assurance of that fact was given to Peter by Jesus in verse 36. Just look at verse 36 there. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither thou goest, Jesus answered him, Whither I go, thou cannot follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. So they would be with Jesus, but not now. Let's have a look at verses 37 and 38. Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, The cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. (coughs) Peter's response to the Lord's announcement that he would soon depart from them revealed that he did not understand that Jesus was talking about his return to his father He couldn't think beyond the awful prospect of being separated from Jesus. That's the only thing he could hear. That Jesus would be going and that uh, Peter would not be with him, be going with him now. It was unbearable for Peter to hear those things. Also, even though Peter spoke like a true martyr, he did not know himself that he would in fact deny Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. And not in quick succession either. It was spread out over a whole night. That denial of the Lord Jesus Christ over a prolonged period. About a week after the Lord's ascension to heaven, the Holy Spirit would be given at Pentecost and only then onwards would Peter be bold not just in his words, but in his deeds also. Throughout church history, not just the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also an untold number of Christians have considered it their great privilege and even their joy to suffer and to die for Christ's sake. Yes, a privilege and a joy to suffer and even to die for the name of Jesus. Dear Christian, may it be your prayer and your earnest desire that God would give you a martyr spirit. Finally, let's come to verse 34. I haven't looked at that one yet with you. Verse 34. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. It would seem that with regards Peter, verse 34 fell on deaf ears at that moment in time. He was too preoccupied with that bombshell announcement from Jesus that he would soon be gone, as we've just seen. Because Jesus, he gave a new commandment about love in verse 34, And verse 35, 
where it says, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. And what's the response of Peter in verse 36? Lord, whither thou goest? Peter is still preoccupied with what Jesus had said before in verse 33, where he said, Little children, yet a little while I am with you, ye shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. And now I say to you, Peter was in no mind to listen to any new commandments about love. Not at that time anyway. Even so, as we clearly see in verse 34, loving one another, in other words, having a Christian love, is a commandment of God. Jesus says it there. A new commandment, I, son of man, son of God, I give to you that ye love one another as I have loved you. As such, it ought to be something that is woven into the very fabric of all that belong to Jesus. That you love one another as Jesus (coughs) has loved you. And that comes across very clearly in the first epistle of John, in chapter 5 and verse 1. Let me just read that to you. We looked at this some weeks ago in our Wednesday Bible studies, and it's something that stuck with me. Let me just read 1 John chapter 5 and verse 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God, That's believing that Jesus is, as I've said on many occasions, to believe that Jesus is the Christ is synonymous with believing that he is the Son of God. As the Apostle Peter said, his great confession, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You cannot separate the two. So let's look at verse 1 of 1 John chapter 5. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is born of God. In other words, someone who's a Christian, born again Christian, believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And you think, well, of course, that's obvious. You can't be a Christian, a real born again Christian, if you don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But it doesn't stop there, does it? It then goes, the, John goes on to say, and everyone that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. And the begotten of him are Christians. Other Christians. Because it goes on to say in verse 2, by this we know that we are, that we love the children of God. The point I'm making here is that everyone would agree that you cannot be a real Christian unless you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But equally, you can't be a real Christian if you don't have love for one for another. Christian love. That's part and parcel of what a Christian is. And Jesus gives that as a commandment to us. And by his grace... We obey that commandment with his enabling grace, with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We love 
one another. Maybe, and I'll finish with this, maybe I'm not alone in recognising the need to pray. Something I do, I, I confess this to you, that I pray that I would bring forth much more fruit of love. When you think that this, if you feel that you're in the same position as me at times, and you're thinking, well, where is that love for the brethren? More often than not, they get on my nerves. Then pray about it. Pray. The fruit of the Spirit, the first one on that list is love. Pray for more fruit. Not just a few lousy leaves. Or maybe a little smell, a nice smell. Pray for the fruit of love. And we pray to a God who does hear and hearken to the prayers of those whom his son bled for and died for at Calvary's cross. Amen.